This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by SAS. SAS is the leader in analytics. Through innovative software and services, SAS empowers and inspires customers around the world to transform data into intelligence. SAS gives you the power to know. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Friday, December 7th, The Washington Post brought together top government officials, health policy experts, patient advocates, and medical professionals for a series of discussions about the opioid crisis. Speakers discussed new proposals aimed at combating the epidemic, provided solutions for addressing disparities in access to treatment, and examined the impact of drugs on communities throughout the country. In this segment, the U.S. Surgeon General joins Washington Post health and medicine reporter Lenny Bernstein to discuss the latest proposals from the federal government aimed at combating the worst addiction epidemic in American history. Let's listen. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for being with us today. Um, We're very on. I'm uh, Lenny Bernstein, by the way. I'm a health and medicine reporter here at the Washington Post. And today we are honored to have uh, Surgeon General Jerome Adams with us. Uh, We're going to talk about the opioid crisis and what the federal government has been doing to uh, help with the opioid crisis. Um, Before we we begin, I want to remind you that if you want to ask a question, Dr. Adams, uh, you can tweet it to us. Please use the hashtag postlive. I'll get them on this iPad if I can figure out how to work it. And then I will pose the question to Dr. Adams. So welcome. Thank you for for, uh, being here with us. Glad to be here, Lenny. The numbers we got last week. Uh, we can't ignore them. Uh, life expectancy down again, uh, 70,000 deaths from drug overdoses in 2017. Um, for people's context, that's about 200 a day, or if twice the number of people in this room were to die every day of a drug overdose. It's like a 747 jet dropping out of the sky each and every day. And 47, 48,000 uh, from fentanyl. Do you ever just sort of step back and say, How do we get here? How did things get so out of control? Every day, and it's one of the things I'm trying to help folks understand, is that this is a a once-in-a-generation type of problem. And you wrote a great article about this uh, just a a while back, uh, speaking of the fact that we haven't had three years in a row where we have had either a decline or a steady state since uh, going back to World War I. I often think about the HIV epidemic that occurred 30 years ago, and our kids are going to grow up and remember this time as a critical moment in their history. Uh, I represent the first generation of parents in 50 years who, as of right now, can't look their own kids in the eye and say, you're going to live a longer life than I did. Wow. That's amazing. Um, It's becoming largely fentanyl. Uh, The number of deaths from... Uh, prescription narcotics and from heroin, thankfully, leveled off in 2017. But fentanyl deaths are continuing to go through the roof. What do we do about fentanyl in this country? Well, it shows the importance of partnering with law enforcement. I was in Boston just yesterday at an event with over 400 law enforcement officers. It shows that we can't solve this problem in our traditional silos. Uh, We know a lot of the fentanyl is coming in from out of the country, 
and the administration is really leaning into enforcement. But I also think it's important that we remember this epidemic had three phases. Phase one was a uh, overprescribing epidemic, and I was part of that. I was taught 20 years ago that pain is the fifth vital sign, that if you gave people opioids for pain, it wouldn't cause them uh, any problems. And I taught that to my residents and medical students. We cracked down on prescribing. If I could interrupt, yes. I, I think people in this era just that sort of boggles the mind. How, how, did, we, how did we come to teach that uh, they would not get addicted to opioids? Well, that's a great question, too. You know, the fact is that 60% of people who misuse opioids are misusing them to treat pain. And so we pat ourselves on the back for driving down opioid prescribing rates. But my challenge to providers and to America in particular is don't just look at the decrease in opioid prescribing unless you're plotting it against the increased availability of pain management modalities because otherwise you're just sending people from one place to another to another. So we cracked down on opioid prescribing. People jumped over to heroin. Phase two was a heroin epidemic and we saw hepatitis rates go up. We saw the HIV epidemic in Scott County. And now we're seeing a, a tremendous increase in overdoses because of the involvement in fentanyl. But we have to remember that even though it is now largely a fentanyl epidemic that's responsible for overdoses, the majority of folks who misuse still get started with a prescription opioid. And so we can't forget that that is the beginning of this pathway for so many folks. If we were somehow able to halt the flow of fentanyl, is there another drug that's coming behind fentanyl that we need to worry about? Well, there's always going to be another drug if we only focus on the supply side. Mm -hmm. We've got to focus on the demand side also, and that goes back to making sure we're appropriately treating pain. I mean, in my mind, there are three reasons that people misuse. One is ignorance, and there are a lot of young people out there who don't know these medications are dangerous because they come in a pill that has doctor written on the side. So we're raising awareness amongst youth. Number two is chronic pain, legitimate chronic pain, and we need to make sure we're treating acute and chronic pain appropriately. We need to make sure that, that, uh, that we're doing that. And the third reason for, uh, for people misusing is mental, physical pain, mental pain and anguish. It's depression, it's anxiety, it's how my brother's pathway got started. And until we get serious about addressing mental health issues, we're also gonna continue to see folks jump from one drug to the next. So folks are self-medicating. Exactly. They, they feel depressed, they take an opioid, and an addiction occurs. I was gonna ask you next about your brother. Would you mind sharing the story with our folks who are watching here and online? Absolutely. You know, my brother Philip, my baby brother, is in prison in Maryland, uh, not far from here right now. He uh, had unrecognized, untreated anxiety and depression, self-medicated with alcohol, with tobacco, with marijuana. And then one day he went to a party and someone gave him a pill. And it was like a light switch. And that rapidly went into injection drug use, him committing crimes to support his habit. And uh, he stole $200 and got a 10-year prison sentence. And I share his story, uh, not because it's unique, but because, unfortunately, it is the story of America. And every community you go into in America, there is someone who has that same story. And uh, we've got to start to look at this epidemic as something that really does affect all of us. 200, uh, 10 year prison sentence for $200 theft? Can, how did that happen? Well, I don't want to, to uh, diminish the, the importance of public safety and of making sure people 
are responsible for their crimes. But again, I share the story because it helps lower stigma, but also because at $100 to $200 a day to incarcerate someone, it's going to cost the taxpayers hundreds of thousands of dollars to incarcerate my brother, only to put him back out and do the same thing over and over again because he's still not getting treatment. There has got to be a better way. If we had spent $1,000 on him up front to get him treatment for his anxiety, if we'd spent $50 up front to get him into an after-school program where he could build some resilience. So many places that we miss to intervene that ultimately turn into hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars, uh, that this, this country is wasting to try to punish a chronic disease. That's incredible. That's an incredible story. Um, let's, let's talk about what we are doing. What is the... It feels, even though the, the epidemic is still horrible. It does feel like in the past two or three years, the government and other parts of society have begun to mobilize. We're not anywhere close yet, but people are in the phase where they're doing things. What's the federal government doing? Uh, the federal government, for the first time ever, uh, the administration has all of the different agencies coming together on a regular basis to make sure, number one, we're talking to each other. So Department of Justice, Health and Human Services, Education, Labor are all coming together to figure out how this is impacting them and how we can lean in together and combine our resources. And I mentioned labor, six million unfilled jobs in our country right now. More unfilled jobs than there are people looking for work. This opioid epidemic is not just something that affects my brother or affects me and our family. It affects all of us, our competitiveness, our ability to continue on this economic upswing. Uh, the government has put out $2 billion, uh, more, more money than has ever been dedicated to the opioid epidemic. Folks say it's not enough. What I will say is we can't spend our way out of the problem. We need to work smarter in addition to working harder and, again, find ways to break down the silos and different funding streams so that we all can pool our resources to, to work together. But I'm also focused on making sure that money gets to local communities. I used to run the State Department of Health in Indiana. And one of the frustrations was that the money, we'd hear about it on TV, but it never seemed like it made it down to the community level. How is that possible? Well, you know, it's hard to distribute money across the United States. And so it gets allocated here. It goes to the states. Then the states have to allocate it to the communities, and then the communities then divvy it up amongst the smaller groups. And one of the things we're trying to do, this administration is really trying to do, is make sure that money gets there so much more quickly, looking at new models to fund different programs so that some places can apply directly instead of having to go through a lot of the, uh, uh, the circuitous routes to get mm -hmm. that funding. Mm -hmm. what, um, what is some of the money going towards at the community level? What, what's being done? Well, I'm proud to say that after I put out our naloxone advisory, the first uh, Surgeon General's advisory in over 13 years, that naloxone prescribing is up over 350%. We know that the communities that have been able to turn around this opioid epidemic have really leaned into saturation with naloxone. For, sorry to interrupt, Dr. Adams. For people who don't know, what naloxone, is naloxone and what does it do? Naloxone is a very safe medication that is an antidote to an opioid overdose. Over 50% of the overdoses that are occurring are occurring in a home environment, in a garage, in a bedroom, in a bathroom, and brain death occurs within four minutes. So until we can invent an ambulance that can teleport to your house in four minutes, 
we need to make sure everyone understands that they can and need to carry naloxone if they are at risk of encountering someone who's having an overdose, which right now is, is most of us. And so uh, we're really making sure communities can access naloxone. Uh, we're expanding treatment and trying to break down barriers so that we can have more both inpatient treatment and outpatient treatment uh, through things such as telemedicine, Project ECHO. We need folks to understand that we will never be able to have enough inpatient beds to meet the need. We've got to start looking at different models of care and we're promoting those models of care. NIH is also looking at alternatives to opioids for pain management and FDA is trying to approve those, approving those alternatives at a rapid rate because again, if we don't treat this epidemic of chronic pain that precipitated the opioid epidemic, then the pendulum's just gonna swing all the way back to where it was again. Well. So you're doing perfect, you keep raising my next question. All right. And um, my next question was going to be, we know what works in terms of treatment. People need to be on buprenorphine, mm -hmm. methadone, some form of medically assisted treatment because as you say, we're never gonna have enough beds. You, not everyone can be treated that way. So we live in a nation where I can get my hands on blood pressure medication and so can everybody else. Why in America do we have only 10% or 15% of the people able to get their hands on buprenorphine? Uh, that is a challenge and I was at Harvard Medical School just yesterday in Boston challenging our, uh, our care providers to make sure more folks uh, have pain management training, number one, but number two are willing to be data wavered so that they can prescribe buprenorphine. I want every at least primary care physician, OBGYN, ER doc, uh, to be trained to actually prescribe medication-assisted treatment. We don't have enough providers. We've also got stigma attached to medication-assisted treatment. We need to help folks understand that we're not enabling addiction, we're enabling recovery when we provide people with medication-assisted treatment. And those are areas, again, that I'm leaning in on as Surgeon General, education of providers, education of the community, fighting stigma. But there are barriers to being a doc who wants to prescribe buprenorphine, even if I did, right? I have to get some special training, I need a waiver. What, can we clear that out of the way? Well, that's one of the things we're trying to explore. It's interesting, uh, there's a saying, the pathway to hell is, is paved with good intentions. Uh, there are many well-meaning policies uh, that we enact that then have terrible consequences. One of them was pain as the fifth vital sign. The fact is, when you, took, when you talk to uh, folks who run jails and prisons, they will tell you uh, one of the top products that they confiscate in terms of contraband is buprenorphine. So uh, I hesitate to say that because I don't want to give it a black mark, but the reality is we need to make sure we're increasing availability to those who need it, but not creating another epidemic or problem out there. And that's why we're being very careful when we look at the data waiver process and really leaning into now making sure folks are better trained and that healthcare systems are creating an environment that makes it easier for providers to get trained and to prescribe. Um, so do you, uh, do you, you mentioned the two billion that the government is spending. I presume that includes the, law, the legislation that Congress passed. Yes. Is the Trump administration doing enough to curb the opioid crisis, in your opinion? Well, the reality is we all need to ask ourselves if we're doing enough and what more we can do. We all need to ask ourselves which partners aren't at the table. Again, how can we work smarter instead of working harder? And the, re the, the reality is we need to do both. What I can say about the administration is they're doing more than any other administration has done to tackle the opioid epidemic. Uh, the president has been unafraid to take on the 
pharmaceutical companies and some of the other interest groups out there that have traditionally held back progress on this issue. And uh, again, I, I want folks to understand that we aren't going to solve this problem from Washington, D.C. We're not. Uh, I feel our job in the federal government is to educate, to lift up best practices, and to enable local innovation uh, so that folks can solve this problem locally where the problem is occurring. We've talked about pain and, and not, uh, and taking steps to keep people from becoming addicted through uh, legitimate medication. We, we've talked about uh, the other ways that folks get addicted, but a, a large part of this problem is a mental health problem. Mm -hmm. um, what are we doing about mental health funding and given what you said about money getting to communities, what are we doing about getting money on, uh, onto the streets and services onto the streets to address mental health? That's a great question and I'm gonna answer it perhaps in a, in a wider way. The opioid epidemic is a terrible tragedy but it's also a tremendous opportunity. And what do I mean there? Uh, 10 years ago, I would have never been able to get 400 police officers to come together in a room to talk about a public health issue. There are folks coming to the table like never before, CEOs, uh, priests, and, and, and faith leaders, uh, teachers, to talk about a public health issue. And what I want us not to do is to focus so much on putting out the fire that we don't lean into fire prevention. Mm. And what is fire prevention? It's creating health and wellness in our communities. It's addressing mental health issues. You ask specifically what I'm doing, I'll tell you. I'm talking to providers to make sure we're integrating behavioral health services into primary care, that we stop looking at behavioral health services as a add-on and instead look at, it, look at it as a value add to the patient care encounter. So you would like to see mental health uh, be taken care of by the primary care doc? Well, that's the only way. We, we aren't going to have enough psychiatrists or psychologists out there to give every single person direct access. We need folks to understand that we can't separate the mind from the body physically, and we shouldn't do it in the care encounter. At every care encounter, you should be screened for risk factors for substance misuse, for suicide, which is another reason life expectancy is declining, for all of the potential things that if we catch them earlier, prevent folks from turning into my brother down the road in prison for 10 years, costing the taxpayer hundreds of thousands of dollars. One more I'm gonna ask you about that, that, uh, that when I go around uh, and I interview uh, people with substance abuse disorders, usually at, at treatment facilities and places like that, there's a tremendous correlation between childhood abuse and addiction, uh, particularly when it comes to heroin. Uh, are we working on that? Are we doing anything to try to curb the amount of abuse in the home, which seems to be one of our most intractable problems, but it, are we doing anything about so it? So again, the, the wider window there is what we call adverse childhood experiences. And we know that if someone suffers from an adverse childhood experience, and over 50% of us do, that you are much more likely to become pregnant as a teenager, to not finish high school, to not have a job or have a low-paying job, to engage in criminal behavior, to become a victim of substance use disorder. And so I'm working as the Surgeon General with others within the Department of Health and Human Services and beyond to lift up this issue of adverse childhood experiences, but also of resilience. We know that everyone who has an adverse childhood experience doesn't have a bad outcome as an adult. So what are the factors that put you on the pathway to success as opposed to on the pathway to negative outcomes? Hmm. 
Uh, here's a question from Twitter. Uh, how much will the increased legalization of marijuana lead to increased addiction to other drugs like opioids and heroin? That is a, a great question. And the, the marijuana issue is, is a little bit too complicated to unpack in, the, in this setting. But it's important that we understand that there's a difference between the discussion of the medicinal properties of marijuana and I don't say medical marijuana because there's no such thing as medical marijuana any more than there's a such thing as medical poppy, which is the plant from which heroin and, and, and opioids are derived. There are medicinal components of marijuana. There's a difference between that and looking at our criminal laws, which again, do need to be looked at. It shouldn't be a 10-year prison sentence in one state and a slap on the wrist in another state. And we also need to look at the recreational side of things, recreational use. And uh, from that point of view, I'd tell you it would be incredibly disingenuous of me as Surgeon General to say you shouldn't smoke a cigarette, but I'm fine for you to go and light up a joint. <laughs> but that said, we know that marijuana primes the brain for further addiction, as it did in my brother. That, uh, that it can cause developmental delay, particularly in the young and developing brain. And we still don't know the effects it can have on the rest of the body, particularly if you're smoking it. Uh, if cigarettes cause cancer, there's every reason to believe that long-term usage of marijuana can cause cancer. Okay, so you're America's doctor. That's your nickname. Uh, you're, in a way, the doctor for all of these folks. I'm just dad at home. My kids don't <laughs> care that I'm the Surgeon General. <laughs> Except when you're wearing the uniform. Yeah. They love the uniform. Um, in the time we have remaining, if the average citizen wants to do something about this. I don't work for government. I don't work for anyone who has power or authority to do anything about this problem. What can I do? Well, 30 years ago, C. Everett Koop sent out a letter to every household in America called Understanding AIDS because he was dealing with an epidemic and he wanted all of America to understand they could play a role. Well, I wanted to do the same thing for the opioid epidemic because, again, I believe it's a generation-defining problem, but they told me it was going to cost 50 plus million dollars to do that. And more importantly, my kids said, Dad, nobody reads mail from the mailbox anymore anyway. So what I did was put out a digital postcard. And it's a list five steps that every American can take, every American to respond to the opioid epidemic. But it's a digital postcard. It's on my website, surgeongeneral.gov. And I ask all of you all to go to that website, view my digital postcard, determine the steps that you can take, but more importantly, please share it through your social media channels so that we can get it to every household in America. Because the fact is, this opioid epidemic is like an elephant that's sitting in front of us. And everyone looks at it and says, I can't eat that elephant. And so they start pointing fingers and saying, you need to do it. No, it's your fault. No, you need to do it. But the way we're gonna eat that elephant is both one bite at a time and with everyone cooperating and taking their own individual bite. And so, Here's how each of you can play a part in responding to the opioid epidemic. Go to my website, view, download, and share my digital postcard. We all have a role to play. Terrific. Thank you so much. Um, I want to thank the Surgeon General for being with us today. That's all the time we have for this panel. Um, and then we will uh, move on to the next one. Thank you, Lenny. Great. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.